so much um, for, for coming to this recording. I'm Ali Baker, she, her, an education lecturer and children's fantasy literature researcher at the University of East London. You're listening to Fantasy Book Swap, where a, normally a guest and I swap children's fantasy fiction, one classic and one contemporary, and we discuss them. Today, I'm recording live at Reclamation 22 with Tasha Suri, author, cat owner, and Reclamation guest of honour. Hello, what have you been up to? Hello. <laughs> um, well, I've just been enjoying the convention, to be honest. It's been so nice to be here in person and actually meet all my friends and go to panels. It's been really, really lovely. Yeah. You've got actual people in front of us. <laughs> I said, like, well done for the people who were here at 10.30 in the morning. That's amazing. We're all looking more alive than I was expecting. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you chose Alana, the first adventure. Can you summarise the plot for us? Yes, I can. Actually, after I chose it, I realised um, that I haven't read it possibly since I was a teenager. So I went to try and find it and was, was flabbergasted and unhappy that it was quite difficult to get hold of, actually. You can get it in print. Um, oh, I'm going to mic, sorry. You can get it in print, um, but getting it on Kindle was almost impossible, but luckily my local library came through. That was a big tangent. But, uh, <laughs> it is about a girl called Alana, who is a twin, and she and her brother, Tom, when they had children, are going to be sent to different places. Alana's going to be sent to become a lady, um, which she's very unhappy about, and Tom is going to be sent to become a knight, which she's also extremely unhappy about. So they decide to swap places, and Alana becomes Alan, um, and pretends to be a boy um, in order to become a knight, and Tom goes to become a sorcerer. And so the first book in the um, Song of the Lioness Quartet, mm -hmm. I think is its name, is all about her. Um, becoming a, a young knight and meeting other children and pretending to be a boy and learning how to fight and meeting her, her range of future love interests. Yes, we will come back to the range of future love interests in a bit. <laughs> what is your memory of first reading it? Did, did it? Was it at school or from a library? Or? It was a school library, yeah. Um, I, I think this is still actually true for a lot of kids. I mean, despite the fact that we have, you know, Kindles and e-books and things like that, often the first place that you come across a book is where, um, is in a library, because a library is a place where there are lots of books and no one's checking what you're reading. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, there's lots of books. Um, I had a lot of interesting things that got past the librarian. <laughs> But Alana attracted me because it was, you know, it was a girl on the cover and it was mm. magic and all of that looked really good. And um, I, I picked it up partly because it was the first in the series and I loved that I could keep mm. going. Um, and I just, I just remember really um, loving it. It's that feeling you get when you read a really amazing book or a book that really speaks to you, you absolutely sink into it and you go, I'm going to read everything this person's written again because it's a library I could because all the books were there um, so yeah school library was where I picked it up yeah I, I don't think I came across it until I was in my 20s I think when I first read it and I picked it up in a charity shop and I, I was going to bring my copy with me but it is the collected all four books in one great big chunk of a book and really you know my back couldn't cope with carrying this book all the way from Brighton. Do you think it's influenced your own writing? I have thought about this um, because you kind of make some of the questions <laughs> in the notes. Um, and um, so they're not witty, that's my own fault. Uh, but the, I don't know if it did directly in the sense that I don't think I would write necessarily about, you know, girls dressing up as boys, pretending to be knights, etc, etc. But I think that Tamora Pierce and the Alani books and all that other books had a humongous impact on the way that especially young adult fantasy is written and perhaps generally fantasy about women. So in that sense it had a big impact because so many of the things that have shaped my writing were shaped by Tamora Pierce. Um, the way that the book, I think, kind of had a really early nascent kind of approach to gender um, the way that it depicted sexuality, the way that um, 
you know, you've had a girl going on adventures and it directly with feminism and gender in a lot of ways. I think fiction that children were reading at that time didn't. Mm. Um, was all kind of like very powerful and um, did influence me in the sense that it influenced everything. Mm. Yes, the, the question about the love interests is absolutely fascinating to me because unusually for a kind of buildings roman kind of book you know what it's about a person growing up um so ilana's 11 at the beginning of the book and, and she's about 14 at the end of the first book i think but she she has uh, she has two two of the characters who she's really attracted to um, there's one who is the, going to be the future king of uh, the, the country of Tortal, and the other one who is the rogue king. So he's the king of the thieves. So there's these two characters. And <clears throat> what is really interesting to me, it's not in the first book, but in the later books, she has, um, she has relationships with both of them including sexual relationships with both of them. Contraceptive is dis are discussed in the book as well. And that is fascinating. It's, uh, she's not punished for having more than one love interest, which lots of children's books do tend to, um, even now. And I'm always extremely alarmed by children's books where the person marries their first love. It's, it's very, um, I think it gives a, a very problematic understanding of what adult relationships are like. You know, you, you meet this person who is obviously always of the opposite gender of you, you fall in love with them, and that's it. You're together for life. And I think, for me, that's also something that comes up in your books as well, that some, there's, um, relationships are often problematic. They're not straightforward. Um, would you agree with that? I, I guess so. I think I'm in many ways more, more conservative than uh, Tamora Pierce was in her approach, because I usually go, here's the love interest. We're not having any others. This is the love interest. Whether this works out or not is a different question. Yes. Um, but I, I like that Tamora Pierce went into that book and she said, I want Alana to be a whole person and mm. I don't want her to be, and I want her to have choices and decide who she wants to be with. And it's, you know, it's like, I think what tickled me is it, it, it reminded me of a lot of like the fantasy books that I've read for teens for boys, you know, mm. where, you know, they have different female love interests and mm. it isn't the first girl they fall in love with that they end up with. And, um, and Alana gets to have that same experience, but with different guys, I guess. Um, and that was really nice. And I liked as well that the love interest she eventually ends up with has to wait mm. and has to respect her um, <coughs> her limits, yes. essentially, which you don't get to see a lot. Yeah, she has a lot of agency in the book. Um, I mean, the, the, the notion of heroic girls in Tamora Pierce's books are extremely interesting anyway. I mean, the, the trope in this book of she dresses as a boy, she goes off to, to join the world of boys to become a knight. Um, but in future books that Laura Pierce writes, that's overturned. You know, it, it's like she's sort of in dialogue with her future writing and in her past writing. And she is someone who, who does and has said, actually, I got it wrong in some of my books. I, mean, I think you're right. I think what I like as well is I remember I did a little bit of a research for this and um, she was talking about how she didn't have words for it when she wrote Alana, but that she would probably call her genderqueer now. And I think that sometimes we talk about the way gender is depicted in fantasy mm. and we say, you know, it's actually not a great trope, the girl dresses as a boy trope, because it sort of suggests that if you are um, it's one approach to, to gender that doesn't mm. capture the, the range of different gender performance and gender experience and gender identity. Um, I kind of like to think of the fact that it, it did a lot of very positive things, mm. 
it could have gone further, and I think it's good that Tamara Pierce acknowledges that some of her other books, and perhaps also the early books, are not perfect, mm. and they have to be built up on. I mean, for example, the later Alana books have some very interesting things about uh, desert tribes and uh, um, sort of like we'll become part of the, the magical Bedouin, but we'll be better than the magical Bedouin. And she didn't mean anything um, negative by making that story. But our understanding of how that should be written and who should write it has changed a lot since the 1980s. Yes, that, that's definitely the case. Um, the, the fact that they had the... Um, the knights of, Tort- of the Tortal had to go and defeat uh, a magical enemy for the Bajir tribes was mm-hmm. is a bit yikes these days. But yeah, as you say, at the time, our people's understanding was not quite as nuanced about who should be telling stories and who should be writing stories and who should be having the agency and and so on. Um. What are, have you read other books that have heroic girls like Alana? I have loads. I mean, I feel like a lot of young adult fantasy is full of kind of heroic girls. I mean, we could mention the, you know, we could mention Utterly Dark. Yes. We? Um, I think that it's more likely that you'll read about heroic girls than anything else in a lot of fantasy for mm. teens and children because girls want to be heroic and they want to see themselves. Yeah, I, I, I like. In um, particularly in the Caledry books, um, that is the protector of the small quartet, that Caledry um, is a, very, a, a kind of a strong, physically strong. She's very tall, she's very big, um, and she's very muscular, and she works out. I mean, as does Alana. Actually, <laughs> she's not. Alana is not um, immediately brilliant at everything. No, she has to learn, and that's also really great. But um, Caledry says, I'm not going to compromise myself to make other people feel more comfortable. Mm -hmm. So, um, yes, I'm going to be, you know, beating all the boys up uh, in the in the practice courts. But in the evenings, I'm not going to make it easy for you to ignore that I am a girl. So. She actually writes to her, her family and says, um, I don't have enough dresses. Could you send me some dresses to wear in the evening? Uh, and she does this because even though she's actually quite comfortable wearing uh, trousers and, well, breeches and, uh, and so on, she's like, she doesn't want to um, let people forget that she is a girl and girls can do things that boys can do. It's just that... Physically, she's got to put in a lot more work to be as, as strong and, um, <clears throat> in particular, to wield the uh, wield, wield the weapons. And um, she has to work very, very hard at jousting, in particular. And yet, at the end of the series, she's the one beating everybody else at jousting because she's put the work in. And that that's brilliant to me. I think what was what was nice about reading all those books, kind of like back to back as a kid, is that um, it felt like Caledry could do what she did and say, "I am a girl. You're going to treat me like a girl, but I'm also a knight because mm. girls can be knights because of what Alana did." Yes. Um, and it was sort of a, it was you're right. And Tori's books are very in dialogue with each other, like, um, and you kind of feel like it's saying that for progress to happen, for feminism to happen, it takes, there are stages to it and it takes time and different people have different requirements and different things they desire from it as well. Yeah, and, and things don't automatically change over overnight mm-hmm. and there are a range of opinions yeah. about about what she's doing and that that's amazing. So shall we move on to talk about Utterly Dark? Yeah, let's do it, yeah. then. So I'm going to read the blurb. It was always at sundown they were seen, in that twilight hour where the walls between the worlds grew thin, strange things might slip through the cracks. Sometimes then, so the stories went, enchanted islands would appear in the empty ocean to the west of Wild Sea. When Utterly Dark was a baby, 
She was washed up on the shores of the Autumn Isles and taken in by the Watcher of Wild Sea. But everything changes when her guardian suddenly drowns. Now who will keep the watch and make sure Wild Sea stays safe from strange forces teeming in the deep ocean around them? So that's a, that's a, a taster of the book. I, I really, really loved this book. I really enjoyed it. Um, what do you... For me, one of the things that was very special is living by the sea as I do. The sea is such an important part of, of where I live in Brighton. The noise of the sea is... It, you can't escape it. You can hear, you can see it from the centre of the town. And the sea is such an important character in this book. What, what did you think about that? Sorry, I've done a comment, not a question. <laughs> I should hoik myself off my own panel. I mean, literally, it's literally your podcast. You, you're the last name. <laughs> um, I thought it was really amazing. I, I didn't grow up around the sea, and I'm deeply suspicious of nature, but uh, uh, I thought it really good. I think what was nice about it is that you never get any sense that Philip Reed, who's here, I can hear me say this, is talking down to his to his readers. Mm. Um, and it was so nice to think maybe I don't live by the, the ocean and I'm not frightened of it really in that way. And yet the descriptions were so evocative and full and creepy. Like there was no there was no like oh I can't make this creepy for children. Children love creepy stuff. Mm. You know, we can all remember big kids, you know? And, and there was no effort to kind of turn that down. It was, this is creepy, this is what the ocean is like, this is what the ocean is like in this, in wild sea, in this particular place. Um, and that relevance and that beauty came across on the page really perfectly. Well, I, I think it's, um, I think it's very interesting that one of the things that happens every year in our local newspaper um, which I call the, the Brighton disaster because it's all about disasters and, and shocking things, um, that every single year there is someone along the southeast coast, at least one person, who gets into trouble at the sea. And it's very rough, the sea at Brighton. And um, very often during the winter months, the seafront's closed because it's dangerous mm -hmm. for people to actually walk along it. Um, and it is a malevolent force. It's beautiful. It's great. I love swimming in the sea. It's flipping cold, but I still do it. But it can, you can very easily get into trouble not that far away from beach. And that, I think, um, people at the time, I mean, Philip told me it's set in around 1810, yeah? people would have been very suspicious about it because the boats at the time would have been um, much... They, they were harnessing the power of nature, they're harnessing mm. the wind and so on. And while the, the sailors would have been very skillful, one of the things that happens quite early on in the book is there is a shipwreck. And uh, a lot of the people on the ship, including the ship captain, is drowned. And that happens... And, and fishing and seafaring was an extremely um, dangerous uh, process uh, at that time. So I think that, that that kind of people thinking about sea and thinking about going on holiday, it's not the same thing if you live there and, you know, a lot of people in Brighton still make their living from the sea. So, um, yeah, absolutely. I think what I really loved is that sense of all that the sea was so, um, not necessarily untrustworthy, but it was kind of full of illusions, mm. and there was like, you could see the, the distant hidden lands showing up and then vanishing, and during that shipwreck, you have um, that moment where the, the shore is, like, the rocks are visible, but they're not visible in, um, until it's too late, mm. spoilers, um, because... Everything is so difficult to discern and see, see on the sea. Um, and also the sense that everybody has these illusions about the ocean as well, and that you know you have characters who are convinced that it, it serves this purpose or it should do this or it, that, and it, it doesn't really obey anybody's rules. Yes, yeah, it is. Um, ultimately, it it can 
take on this this power and um, put the lives of people in great deal of danger, um, both on the sea itself, but also the people who live on the land. And uh, again, spoilers, it does put people in danger. Uh, one of the uh, one of the elements of the sea puts puts people in danger. I did really enjoy the folklore aspects of the book as well. So the characters are um, that the the character the characters are fascinating and very rich and and also very magical. So. Um, we have these disappearing islands that you can see and, and you know, uh, Ottilie's uncle says, no, they're just cloud formations, but they turn out actually to be real. Um, and there's also two witches on the island. Yeah. Um, what, what, did you, what did you think about Philip's use of, of folklore in the book. I mean, I loved it. I thought it was really clever that you could interpret it and like all the adult characters does as uh, people are just calling that mad lady lives on the beach, a witch, and you know, they're saying that that person's a troll, but obviously she's not a troll. And, um, and yet also, because you're seeing things from Utterly's perspective too, you're like, maybe, maybe she is a witch, maybe she is a troll, maybe these things are real, but it does sort of make you question whether that's true or not. At the same time, yeah, and and the 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 Gorm, who is like the the a, a sort of a goddess of the sea, who is so malevolent, and we don't find out why she is so malevolent until quite late on in the book, and I'm so I'm not gonna I'm gonna spoil it, but the way that um, she is the the powerful characters are women in the book. Um, the, the, the guy that comes to take the place of the Watcher, who is Utterly's uncle, is he's a very likeable character, but he is also a bit pathetic. He's a bit pathetic. <laughs> in lots of ways. Um, he's very, he does turn out to be a very brave character, and he does uh, go and try and sort things out, but because he tries to do it through rationally... And, and doesn't believe in these malevolent powers, although he is still frightened of the sea, uh, he, he makes a bit of a hash of it. And I, I, I enjoyed that. I, I like that as well, yeah. I, I, I think what I really enjoyed was that there were so many characters who were right there saying very sensible things, but they just sounded completely fantastical to the yeah. sky. Because he's like, well, you can tell me that the sea is doing this, but obviously I know this is just science. Oh, well, okay, yeah. cool, but, you know wait till you see a giant sea monster then you're going to feel a bit differently <laughs> yes. yeah absolutely and, and the kind of the, the powerful nature of the depth of the sea as well so a lot of the action takes place under the sea um, in kind of magical liminal spaces with, within the novel um, and yes it's, it's an interesting thing that um, adult, adults don't always know best in a lot of children's fiction because that's one way that we give children agency but um he really doesn't but he also acknowledges that yeah um which i think was really nice to have an adult figure that gets things wrong wrong but then changes and grows as a result of the children around him and mm. one, one adult um, but i also really loved one of the things i really really liked was that you have this real sense of atmosphere at the beginning mm. and then the story starts to unfold so you know that utterly dark is the main character and her guardian has passed away and uh, someone sort of says well he he drowned but there were whispers that he had um, stones in his pockets and utterly thinks well he always carry pebbles in his pockets and he also and does the grown up reader really going oh okay um but you're like, why is he watching? Why is he a watcher? What is he a watcher of? Why is it important that there is always a dark male um, watching in, in the house at night until the sun sets? What is the purpose of this? And all of that slowly gets revealed, um, which is really nice. It's like a nice unfolding. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and also the, the mystery of, of Ottilie's origins are very interesting. Because the story originally is that, that she was washed up 
from a shipwreck and Andrew Dark uh, rescued her from, from the seashore. And the funny thing is that everybody's just on board with that. Yeah. Like, there's, no, there's clearly no ship. Yeah. So everybody's like, oh yeah, that, that's reasonable. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely found yeah. a baby on the sea, just yeah. like that. Yeah. And that but there's also a, a giant um, mermaid's purse, you know, big piece of, of um, seaweed. Uh, well, not seaweed. It's like um, fishes... Like a dogfish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Egg sack. That's the word. Thank you. And uh, there's a giant one. And so, you know, as as an, a very experienced reader, I immediately thought, oh, oh. So there's more to Utley's origins than is clear at the beginning. But the way that that is also kind of these little clues to who Utley is and whose child she is are just kind of dropped in through the novel until we work it out at the end. You know, it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. So what, what did you think about Utterly compared to Alana? Oh, that's an interesting one, isn't it? Because I feel like Alana had a lot of forward trajectory. I think they both have agency, but Alana knew what she wanted and she went and got it. Whereas I don't think that Utterly necessarily had a thing mm. that she wanted. She wasn't kind of driven by, I want to be a knight, which would have been weird on the island she lived on anyway. Yes. I don't know how she would have done that. <coughs> she, was, she was very much driven by a desire to, to maintain normality, I think, mm. in a lot of ways. She lost her guardian, mm. and then she wanted the watch to be kept, and she wanted, um, wanted to have a watcher there, and she wanted to have somebody else who was her guardian who would also look after her. Um, and I think that... She wasn't even necessarily very curious about what made her slightly odd mm. at the same time, and yet that worked so well because her desire to kind of keep the watch and you know look for the hidden lands and look for the risks that the Gorm was coming back was something that her guardian wasn't doing. So in trying to keep the status quo, she was revealing the magic to us and also like standing up for something very important. Yeah. Um, and and she she takes her own responsibilities around the gap between um, her uh, her guardian um, dying and her uncle arriving. She takes on that responsibility of being the watcher and her expectations of how um, how her uncle is going to to um, take this from her are completely blown because of the experiences that her uncle has had as a, a young man about town in uh, London and having been to university and kind of being aware of science and technology and progression much more so than, than the people on Wild Sea who live very traditional lives. So um, I liked that kind of undercutting of Utterly's expectations and then what she does about that and how she goes about doing what she knows is right is um, is very, very interesting and very compelling, actually. Oh, definitely. I mean, the sense that he's not, you know, a wicked villainous new guardian at all, but he's not keeping the watch, so he's not watching out for him and he's not watching out for the goal, which is his purpose, which is what he's meant to be doing. Mm. So utterly just sort of goes, well, I'll do it then. <laughs> this man won't do it, I'll do it. And she does, that's exactly what she does. And um, she's very good at it, I think, as well. And she's got very neat handwriting. Yeah. So she does a very good job of making the notes and doing the observations. Yeah, and there was something, there was something very like um, relatable about the moment where she's like, I saw the hidden lands, and he's like, Oh, bless you, did you? Oh, well, I'm sure you really didn't. And it's just like, oh, I did the research, I did the research, and I did, I saw it, and you have to trust me. And he doesn't. Yeah. I feel like it's a very relatable experience. Maybe I was in academia too long. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it is very relatable. Um, I, I also, I, I have a bit of a horror of seaweed. I, I don't know if other people feel the same about seaweed. You know, when you're swimming in the sea and this thing touches you and you're like, I'm getting off me! And, and kind of 
because of the way my brain works. I th- always think, Cthulhu's got me. Um, and of course, it isn't Cthulhu, it's just seaweed. Oh, maybe it was Cthulhu. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Creepy imagery that. That yeah. was very creepy also um the weed men who were like made out of seaweed <laughs> and then this is the other thing like her, her guardian is saying um, her uncle is saying oh, it's just seaweed you know it's just kind of blown there whatever and they're like no no seaweed cannot get blown up a cliff and onto a tower yeah, that yeah, is yeah. not what's happening here you're a man of science you can't be this yeah but it's I think actually my, my theory is that he already knows he does really know deep down he knows that the Gorm the sea monster is real he knows that the hidden lands are real but he he can't admit it to himself. So he's doing a lot of hand-waving about things by saying, mm, it's just science, just science. Um, and, and it's to protect himself mm-hmm. from the things that he can't know. And I, I really enjoyed that um, element. Of kind of, it's very kind of, there's a great deal of depth to it. Um, we've got... Was there anything else you wanted to add before we go to questions? No, I, I thought it was just a very good book, actually. Yeah. I, I mean, if we're going to do a little comparison of Alana and Atali yes. again, I think that it's interesting thinking that, um, obviously, Atali Dark is a very new book and Alana is a slightly older one, being from the 1980s. And what I really liked was the sense that um, Alana, as a book, tomorrow piece was clearly going, I'm going to take all the things that you love about classic fantasy and give them a little refashioning. And what I really loved thinking into Utterly was that it felt like very classic children's fantasy. Like, I felt like I was reading something kind of timeless. Mm-hmm. And yet, at the same time, it had a little bit of a twist. So, it kind of, they both had that in different ways, which was lovely. Yes, I agree. And I mean, the, the, a very big difference with the two books is that... Alana, The First Adventure was Tamora Pierce's first published novel. And obviously, Philip is an extremely experienced novelist. So kind of having that, that I, those ideas of how stories work, how um, readers respond to stories is, is very different. Um, Alana was also first written as an adult novel. Really? Yeah. And it was re... Her, she wrote the whole four books as one book and uh, edit, her editor said no you know it, it's it should be shorter each book should be shorter each book should be a step in a lover's journey so the, the conception of the book is uh was quite um quite in it from quite an inexperienced author um of course a lot of um a lot of people think that this happens quite a lot in books, particularly with books by women, that they write a book and it's their editor or their publisher or the marketing people at the publishers says, actually, it's young adult. Actually, it's a children's book. It's something that has happened to a lot of authors over the years. I have to say, I'm glad that Alana was marketed and sold as a children's book because I wouldn't have read it if it had been marketed and sold as an adult book. So... That's one of the times when I'm very in favour of that. Yes. And I think that um, as both of these books show, books for children are not easy. They're not simple. They're not straightforward. They're actually very complex. You can do a lot of very complex things in books for children. 
Um, and it's one of the reasons why I'm a huge fan of children's literature and children's authors. When it's done well, it's it's magical. Oh, 100%. And I also think, like, actually, honestly, hand on heart, children will not read a book that's pandering to them no. or, or isn't good. I think often mm. adult readers will go, well, I paid money for this, I'm going to get through it, and I'll find things that I like. Mm. Um, whereas a, a child is going to be like, it's not a good book. It's yeah. not a good book. I'm not enjoying it. It's not nice. And I'll put it aside. At least that was my experience as a kid. Yes, me, mine too. And, and actually, it still is now. I mean, I'm 53. I, I haven't got that many thousands of years left to be reading. There's a finite number of books I'm going to read for the rest of my life. I'm not wasting my time on stuff that's boring. I just don't. If I'm not hooked within the first couple of chapters, and you know, I put it away. And I tell my students this as well, that it's okay for children not to persevere with books. It's absolutely okay to say, actually, this is not to my taste. There's something about this book that is not working for me. I'm going to put it down. Whereas um, when I was at school, you know, reading in, in class, you were not allowed to put a book down. It was really weird. It's such a bizarre idea that this is what, you know, reading is somehow like porridge or cabbage <laughs> or something, and, and you must finish your it's plate. It's medicinal, isn't it? Yes. It's good for you. Reading is good for you. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I mean, that's... That's a lot of what is in my PhD. It's about that, yeah. Okay, so um, audience, do we have a mic? Can we have a, a mic gopher, please? Oh, thank you very much, uh, person at the back in the green T-shirt. Can we also have a Discord wrangler? Thank you very much, Fran. That's, that's really helpful. Okay. So, questions... And actually, we will take comments because we do. We have a, a younger audience member, and if they want to make a comment, they can make a comment. But they don't have to make a comment. They don't. And they don't have to. <laughs> they don't want to. So, questions. Well, this is embarrassing. Oh, thank you. Uh, at the front with the black T-shirt. Thanks. Hi, um, that was fascinating. Um, to bring in a bit of the kind of the conference, I think this isn't the first time we've heard about kind of quite how edgy and how how tricksy kind of um, children's literature can be. Um, I was in a lot of the panels that were you know were discussing kind of cutting edge social issues, and actually children's fiction is just like always had both feet in that pond. I mean, that's what the feeling was in those panels. Do you guys both agree with that, or is there, is there more to it than that? You know, and why, in a way? Why is it children's fiction that's catching all these like big stories and big ideas and just running with them? I often feel like there's two strands of thought. There are a lot of people who think that um, children's fiction is medicine in a lot of ways, even if it's nice medicine, and it should teach children how the world should be, and you know, nice things, and like how we should be as people. And then there are also people who think. Which, which I don't agree with actually, I think that's terrible because I think actually children are human beings and often have a much harder time than adults because at least as an adult you can go, alright, I've got money or the agency to get out of a situation I have experience. When you're a kid, you're, you're often kind of like workably powerless and you just have to kind of deal with what life throws at you. That's humongously unfair and you have no tools to deal with it. Um, and I remember, you know, it wasn't that long ago that I was a kid, or any of us were, and I remember life being really hard mm. because people never um, acknowledged how hard life was for you or how difficult things were, or, or there was a perception that because you're a kid, you've never experienced anything tough and you've never suffered. And that's just not what being a kid is like. Mm. Um, so I think the other school of thought with children's fiction is if, if your life is hard as a reader, if you're a group of readers who often have a tough time, are often like treated unjustly, you're not listened to, you're, you're not given respect for your feelings, and you still have to go through all these really difficult things where horrible things often happen to you, and you're still dealing with the, like, the pressure of the world, um, but you're not an adult you should have fiction that reflects that. Mm. And um, the best children's fiction, I think, respects children as people mm. and says, yeah, sometimes things are difficult for you. I think you deserve to have a sword and to be able to decide your own life. And even if you can't do that at home, at least you can do it in this book, this book that's for you and not for anybody else. Mm. 
So, yeah, I think adults have different, have a much bigger kind of range of different things they want. Sometimes I think an adult wants to forget reality. Um, actually, that's not true. Children do as well, but that children's fiction is going to, should be on the cutting edge because it should appeal to its readers. There's a very, um, very famous phrase that is used about children's books. It comes from the academic Rudine Sims Bishop, which is that books should be windows, or books are windows, mirrors, and sliding glass doors. So they're windows because we look through the window and we see the lives of other people. We learn about other lives. That's what that's what imaginative fiction does, whether it's, um, whether it's fiction, actually, no, not fiction. That's what imaginative writing does, let's say. So whether it's non-fiction or whether it's fiction, we, we read to find out about other people. When the conditions are right, books are also mirrors. So we can see ourselves reflected in the books we read. Some children... For some children, this is a very, very common experience. Um, and for adults, of course, there, there are always people who are going to be searching for themselves that little bit harder, restoring, which is something I did a lot as a child because you know I didn't read or didn't discover many books with girls as protagonists when, when I was, certainly at secondary school, we didn't read a book with a girl protagonist for three years in English literature. Um, it was uh, To Kill a Mockingbird was the, the first book that I read with a girl protagonist at secondary school yeah it's ridiculous um, but the best books are sliding glass doors where that barrier is removed and a child or a reader can actually go into the book themselves they can be within the story and those, those are the really powerful things. My field work for my PhD um, took place in a, a primary school in um, a small town in East Sussex uh, with a group of children where I was reading fantasy fiction with these children. We had a, a, like a book group. And because my PhD thesis is about social class in um, children's fantasy fiction, I wanted to find out, because I had a very strong sense as a child, of these books not being about me. I could not be in these books. And I wanted to know whether uh, um, contemporary children, you know, 10 and 11-year-olds, felt the same way. And so I asked them about books um, after we'd read each book, and I said to them, you know, do you think you would be in a story? So an example is, is um, Harry Potter. Do you think you could go to Hogwarts? Now, we kind of are told by the media that all children want to go to Hogwarts. These children said, no, no, I couldn't go to Hogwarts. And there was a number of reasons. One of them was I'd miss my cat um, or, um, you know, I'd miss my mom. There were also, I wouldn't like the food was a big question. So that kind of notion of um, being in an unfamiliar space. And another one was, I couldn't go because I play football and they don't play football. They, they play Quidditch and I can't play Quidditch. So it was that kind of set. There was too much that was unfamiliar about these books and about the setting and not being able to imagine yourself within there for these children. There were other books that very surprised me that they could see themselves in. Um, and so, yes, it is to go back to your, your question. Yet children, as Tasha said, are people. They are not a demographic group on their own. They are, belong to different demographic groups. They belong to social, different social classes. They belong to different religions. They belong to different cultures. Um, they are, and, and it's an intersectional the intersectional approach to children's literature should be about reflecting more of a variety. And I am very happy to say that uh, children's fantasy in particular is becoming a lot more diverse um, since the 90s. And that's a really, really good thing, I think. 
um, actually part, thanks in part to authors like, like Philip, who, who has written such a rich uh, group of characters. So thank you. I just love that description of sliding doors, actually. That's Isn't it wonderful? Because I heard the one of mirrors, like you should have more mirrors, but the idea of sliding doors and windows is so nice and kind of captures the, the breadth of different reading experiences so much better. Yeah, I, I can remember very, I have very vivid memories of reading as a child because I didn't learn to read until I was nearly seven. I was in the slow readers group at primary school. Delightful. Um, yes, slow readers come to the front of the class and read to the teacher. Is actually what was said to me. I mean, this is the seventies. It was very strange. Uh, I mean, my school had a sheep. I mean, it was a very, very strange school. I, I didn't realise for years how very bizarre my primary school was. Um, so I have a very, very vivid memories of almost falling headfirst into books once I realised that I could read for myself. And I still get that feeling now of kind of coming up for air and feeling a bit dazed after reading sometimes. Um, and so I, I, I remember that, that very clearly, very vividly. Um, the first book where I saw a child like myself was The Tiger Who Came to Tea. Because... You know, the bit in the, the Tiger Who Came to Tea where there's a, a, a street where Sophie and her family go to the cafe for their tea because the tiger's eaten all the food. It looked like a street in Watford, which is where I, near where I grew up. So I could imagine a tiger coming to my house. It was brilliant. I mean, obviously, I'm the oldest of three, so the tiger would also have eaten my little sisters. But, yeah, I wasn't that bothered about that, frankly. I think what's throwing me is that you had sheep at your primary school in Watford. <laughs> yeah, it's on the outskirts of Watford, so it's quite a rural area. It's on the end of the metropolitan line, people who are familiar with the tube. Uh, so, yeah, we're about five miles from Watford, but we had a sheep. Yeah. Just as you do, yeah. Um, another question. Thank you. So, with the person with the one of the most cool hats in the room. Oh, thank you. But it says something about this column that you have to say one of the most cool hats. <laughs> <laughs> this is definitely a column of good hacking. Oh, it is. <laughs> anyway, uh, yes, I was going to ask uh, one of these novels is set in the past, and one in, forgive me, I haven't read it, I know Heresy. <laughs> But as you say, one only has so many years. Uh, yeah. You know, a, uh, what sounds like a uh, fantasy novel that's based on past societies. Mm. And so I'd like to ask, I mean, it's difficult enough in adult novels nailing that kind of thing of making the past strange enough to give the feeling of a properly alien society without alienating the reader. Mm. How do they do this in a context for uh, younger readers who might be a bit you know, less used to the idea of the past being a foreign country and yet at the same time have to be able to relate to the story. Um, in terms of utterly dark, my, my sense was that, uh, this I don't know if this is your sense as well, that, that there is a lot of children's fiction set in the kind of 1800s. Yeah. So it's not even that um, that you necessarily have to, although I think that Philip did a really good job explaining little bits of the past that wouldn't be mm. familiar, that kind of setting is familiar to a lot of children because if you've watched um, anything anything on BBC set <laughs> in the past, it has that kind of feeling. Um, and you see that in things like the Mallory Towers books and things mm. like that, and, and possibly a lot more modern children's books that I can't think of right now. Um, and similarly, Alana has a fantasy setting that is a familiar fantasy setting. She brings other things in, and tomorrow Pierce, but at the same time it's knights, swords, sorcery, kings. So the setting is a strange world, whether it's history or fantasy, but it's familiar enough that you can kind of step into it and just engage with the story without too much intervening space. Mm, yes, I agree with that. I think also children um, learn history at school. Um, so while their sense of history is not probably as nuanced as adult sense, there is still a feeling of like this is what it was like in the olden days. And Philip doesn't actually say in the book when it was set. I picked it up because I'm an avid reader of Regency romance, so I did know that you know, about the pleasure gardens and so on that that, uh, that Utterly's uncle goes to. But I don't think the children would need 
necessarily to have a great deal of understanding of, of the historical period. Um, I think also there's a lot you can, authors, very good authors, bring in enough familiarity. And one of the things I, I love about reading Tamora Pierce's books is I always feel hungry after I've read them because the descriptions of the food is so good and um, they eat such lovely things. But so having that kind of feed, and the food is not always Western European food that they eat either. So that's enough interestingness and familiarity for children. I mean, I always feel really sorry for the Patilcha twins in uh, at Harry Potter. I mean, do they never get familiar food for them? They're just always eating like the sausages and pies and everything that everybody else is eating. Um, I don't know whether house elves have uh, Indian cookery books or not, but you know, it's a shame that they're not. You think you could make anything, couldn't you? Yeah. I mean, probably don't even need house elves. They've probably got some kind of like magical replicator that could make <laughs> food. Yeah, yeah, probably. Thank you for that question. That that was great. Um, do we have any questions on the Discord, Fran? We don't have any questions, but there is a general sense amongst the Discord that we are with you on seaweed. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think we'll set up a seaweed frightened people support group for the next for the next con. Um, yes, at the back. I'm embarrassed to say this is more of a comment than a question. I'm so sorry. No, please go for it. I just wanted to say that when you were talking about how effective and atmospheric all the sort of magic links with nature is in Utterly Dark, one of the things that occurred to me was that in the past couple of years, the only other book I can think of that was quite as effective in that kind of blending was actually Tosh's book, The Jasmine Throne. Thank you. Magic is, again, what I really remember was my first hook into that book was this gorgeously creepy Nature magic with you know plants growing out of people in this very freaky way is incredibly compelling. So it was just an interesting link that you know they were in the two different age group in the targets, but both using nature and magic intertwined so beautifully. It's funny that I started my description of the sea being like I don't really like nature. As I said, I thought didn't I write a whole book? Yeah, do you, would you tell the audience how the, the nature magic works in Jasmine Throne? Uh, yes, so um, the Jasmine Throne is a, an adult um, epic fantasy novel, but there is a, um, a whole nation that is um, very forest and, and heavy and jungle heavy. And, uh, there is a, uh, a particular disease in that nation uh, called the rot, which turns plants into, makes plants fleshy, essentially. So they become... <laughs> Sorry. So, um, you know, like you'll try and take the bark of a tree and there'll be flesh underneath your bone. Um, and it makes people go slightly plant. So they start to grow like flowers through. I think I, I just, I, my editor told me, actually, you can't have more flowers come through eyes. And I said, why not? Um, uh, and might make green things grow through skin and things like that. So. There's a character with moss or lichen growing on them. Yes, yeah. So, yeah um, there's a little boy who has flower, uh, his leaves growing through his hair as well. Um, and uh, that was inspired by uh, medical textbook, textbooks. I used to work in a medical library, and uh, there is a book that the Wellcome Trust released. If you want, you know, a fun read uh, called The Sick Rose, um, which has uh, anatomical art from um, historical medical anatomical illustrations. And they are really fascinating because they look a lot like botanical art. So if you go look at something like the horticultural mm. museums, um, the art looks massively similar. And it makes you quite sweaty looking at it because they shouldn't look similar. Mm. Um, there's something in your brain that goes, no, 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 that's not right. And so I thought, ah, oh, that makes me really uncomfortable. I should write a book based on that. <laughs> I, th I think, um, in particular, when we, there's, there's an academic... Uh, term which is called post-humanism which means that uh, human beings are no longer prioritised, should no longer be prioritised in the world, it's, it's, we're part of an ecological system ourselves um, and I think that there's a lot of really fascinating stuff that's coming out of that Emily Mandel uh, St John's um, 
Station, Station 11 is a really, a really good example of that. And um, as, a, as a lot of post-apocalyptic um, fiction, um, but it is, a, it's, it's, it's part of our understanding of ourselves as being separate from nature, which has done an enormous amount of damage to the world. And we're understanding now how much damage there is we are doing to the world and how much of it is uh, we, we're getting towards the point where it's no longer possible for us to undo that damage without having some really serious thoughts about how we coexist with nature in, in the world. And I, I think this kind of um, ideas about uh, people turning into trees, flowers, you know, and being part of nature is, is a really important point now in the Anthropocene that we are, are living in now. Sorry, I was very subtly trying to look at my phone because it just occurred to me that I read a book a number of years ago which was about children, um, about post-apocalyptic kind of climate fiction, about children living on a giant jellyfish. <gasps> and I can't remember the title, so I was trying to like subtly find it. It might just be called Jelly, to be honest. Oh, wow. Um, but it's, I think that, again... It's interesting that I that the the sea is so uncomfortable, mm. um, and that nature and plants are so uncomfortable, and yeah. that sometimes it's discomfort that we use as a kind of um, basis for a story. And often we do that in children's fiction as well. And I, I can't find the name of this book, so I'm going to keep looking for a bit. We so have time for one more question or one more comment, if anybody has one to make. Yes. Sorry, it's called um, Jelly by Clarice. Oh, thank you. Hello. Hi. It's a comment because I have read everything tomorrow is read two, were written two, and later books became a the four quarter in one book. And she says it's because Harry Potter yes. convinced publishers that you could sell to children a big book, which actually was a bit annoying because I quite like having them set at school. Yeah, you're right. Um, that's that's the, the edition I have, and I think it is from the 90s, late 90s. So, yeah. Um, yes, it's it's true that, um, I mean, Harry Potter had, had uh, and Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials, did change the way that children's fiction was considered. I mean, for one thing, children's fiction easily outsells adult fiction by miles. Um, and... Yes, it's, it is uh, something about the stamina of children and reading that, that Harry Potter did change. I mean, personally, I felt some of it was too long. A lot of it was too long. Um, but people read it. People are still reading it. So, yeah, for good or bad. Okay. <laughs> Excuse me. Tasha, where can people find you online? Uh, too many places. So I'm um, Tasha Sirin on Instagram and Tasha Drinks Tea on Twitter because I, I drink tea. Um, uh, those are the main places. I've also um, got uh, a website that I should update more often, which is just tashasiri.com. So you're welcome to come and find me. Uh, I promise I'm extremely interesting. And if I'm not, at least I have those pictures with my cats. Yes, the cat pictures. I, know, I mean, basically, that we know that, that the internet is powered by cat pictures, don't Absolutely. we? Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for listening to episode 21 of Fantasy Book Swap. You can find me on Twitter at Fantasy Swap, Facebook at Fantasy Book Swap, or email fantasybookswap at gmail.com. You can subscribe at most of your favourite podcast places or download from Podbean. Please do rate and review if you can, because it satisfies my vanity. <laughs> Thank you to Steve Abertrails for production assistance and Jack Sadler Johnson for the use of his beautiful track Bliss. Until next time, bye! bye. Thank you so much, everyone. Amazing question. Mm-hmm.